Thank you, good people, and welcome if you're online, and I hope that the sound is now all good and that you're with us, and uh, welcome if you're visiting, by the way. We'd love to meet you. There's a new here counter uh, on your left, uh, on my right, and we'd love to check you there. Put a gift in your hands. You're absolutely welcome here. Well, I thought me, uh, I'd tell you a BC story. Now, nowadays, BC means before Caleb. Uh, that's my son. Uh, everything was different back in those days. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a legit before Christ story in my life. So I grew up, uh, my mom forced me to go to Sunday school. I wasn't a fan. Uh, then after that, for my sins, my parents also sent me to a Catholic school, of which I was not a fan. Uh, and, but through all of this Christian education, I thought I knew Jesus. And I had built up a pretty good idea of what he looked like. And I want to show you a picture of uh, my, my, my understanding of Jesus, the lamb patter. Basically, you know these pictures. Jesus, a bunch of butterflies, a lamb, maybe 10 lambs, maybe there's birds around him. It looks a bit like a scene out of Pocahontas. Um, you don't know whether he's going to preach the sermon or the, on the mount or paint with all the colors of the wind. Uh, anything could happen. And the, my, my picture of Jesus, you know, he looks like a, a boy, like he's never shaved before, uh, patting a lamb every other afternoon, telling people like, let's turn the other cheek and stuff. And I was like, I'm not into this. I'm not into this Jesus. Uh, that you guys keep telling me about because I was into and still am into heavy metal music. My, my mentality is brutal heavy metal music. I love the glutteral screams and the power and I wasn't going to bow down to any God that's like a Jesus, Patrick Lambie kind of a vibe. <laughs> that wasn't something that I was going to do. And I was like, I don't know why people are into this guy. Um, Maybe he taught some cool stuff or whatever, but how can Patrick Jesus Lambie be worthy of worship? I don't, I don't get it. I was into heavy metal. So um, God is Jehovah Sneaky. That's one of his names in the Bible, in the book of opinions. Uh, and so Jehovah Sneaky got a hold of me uh, through one of the ways that he did was through these uh, CDs that my cousin Jan Adam sent over. CDs, if you're Gen Z, that's a compact disc. It plays music. It's a little round thing. Music's on there. It's physical. Uh, and so you put it in. And uh, so he brought these CDs over, and uh, I, they were Christian metal. Now, that didn't make sense to me. Because metal is guttural screaming. It's low-tune guitars. It's thrashing double bass. It is brutal. Okay? So why, how is Pocahontas Jesus going to jowl here with metal? Didn't make sense to me, so I wasn't into it. But how many of you know the power of a mother's nag, right? It's power. So my mom over here in the front row, she used to say to me on almost a daily basis, Jamesy, have you listened to an Adam CDs yet? And um, no, eventually, Jamesy? And eventually, just to stop the internal bleeding, <laughs> listen to these CDs. Nemo. Yeah, reluctantly, and I listened to these bands, Demon Hunter, Norma Jean, August Burns, Red, Disciple, Living Sacrifice. And lo and behold, these bands were brutal, right? These guys were tearing it up. They were chugging the guitars. They were breakdowns, like melting your face. They were brutal. And then I read the lyrics. It was about Jesus. I was like, what? And then I look in there. They actually had verse references in their lyrics books. Because this is back in the day when you had a lyrics book that came with a CD. 
So read the lyrics. You also have to read metal lyrics. You can't really understand them half the time. So you've got to read it. And uh, in there, there were references to the Bible. And that was the first time that I voluntarily read the Bible in my life was because I was looking up, how is this powerful Jesus? Is that a thing? Is this powerful Jesus that they're screaming about really real? And that's when I started looking in the Bible and finding out that Jesus was the kind of guy who argued with religious people, which was an activity I was familiar with. <laughs> he was the kind of guy that chucked over tables. He was the kind of guy that it says in the book of Revelation that he's powerful. It says he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah with a voice that thunders like many oceans, that it says that his eyes are like flaming fires. It says that he holds the stars and out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword and he strikes down the nations. Like this is material for a metal album if you've ever heard one. This is brutal. This doesn't look like Jesus Patrick Lambie. This is some other trip. This is the Alpha, the Omega. This is the powerful Jesus. And I had to admit that I had been completely wrong about Jesus. And when I opened the Bible, I found he's far more magnificent and worthy of worship than anything that I thought. And as we turn today to this passage, now let me just say this first before we do. I'm still passionate to this day about opening the Bible and showing people just how awesome Jesus is. That whatever you thought he was, whatever your preconceived notions is, he's way more awesome than that. And today we get to a passage with these guys, the disciples. It's the night before Jesus is going to die. And they thought they knew Jesus, like I thought I had known. But they find out they actually don't. And it's right at the end of Jesus' life and they still don't get it. And so we're going to turn there. And I, my prayer is that as we get through this, that if you have notions of Jesus that don't see the fullness of how great he is, that by the end of this, you would see the fullness of Jesus. The fullness of him that causes you to bow down that he's king. John 14, that's where we're at. You can read behind me. You can read in your Bibles as well. Jesus said this. He was in the upper room Thursday night. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have said to you, I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me power. I'm going to look at it under these headings. Firstly, the context of concern, because leading up to John 14, these guys are very worried by the news Jesus is bringing them. So what Jesus does is he brings them a cause for comfort, heading number two, in the first few verses, and he tries to alleviate the depression of their hearts. But in so doing, they don't get it, and they actually get confused, which means that Jesus now has to clarify for the confused. Heading number three, which is going through to verse 10, but in the midst of it, he makes a banger of a controversial claim, the type of claim that would get him killed. And Jesus was no stranger to controversial claims. And that's what we're going to look at in verse six. And so let's walk through this. Firstly, if you were taking, taking a photo, God bless you. Heaven is coming for you. Well done. You, 
yeah, you can come take a photo of my page if you missed it. Heading number one, the context for concern is this, that leading up to John chapter 14, the disciples are finding out that Jesus is saying he's going to be crucified. But I want you to put yourself in the room with them. These are dudes that have been with Jesus for three years, 24-7. These are people that left their businesses. They just dropped their nets and they went. They left their families. I don't know how many of you are parents, but imagine leaving your children, leaving your spouse, and going to follow Jesus because you believe he is who he says he is. The cost to follow Jesus was immense. And they had grown to love this man. And they believed that he was the Messiah that would overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire, that this was the guy that was going to liberate Israel once and for all. And so there was a high cost. So imagine the pin drop in the room when Jesus says, you're not going to follow me anymore. I'm going to die. It says this in verse 33 of the previous chapter, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. Can you imagine the hearts that would have been breaking and the despair that would have been settling in? Simon Peter, he's the talker. He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow me. These guys kind of understood Hebrew a bit. They knew he was making a very drastic claim that this is the death for Jesus. And every hope that they would have placed in him, they would have wondered if it was all in vain. If everything they had done was a waste of time. Yet, if they're in despair, can you imagine Jesus, who's considering that tomorrow my back is going to be ripped apart by scourging, that tomorrow I must carry the cross up the hill, that I must be mocked and scorned, and the, the wrath of the Father is going to be poured out on me, and I'm going to die like a common criminal. Yet, despite the reality that what Jesus is facing, his concern is for his disciples. He cares more about what they're going through. And so they've got a cause for concern for which Jesus brings a cause for comfort, which is heading number two. So Jesus brings a bunch of words of comfort. The first of them is this, that he says, believe in me as you believe in God. Believe in me as you believe in God. It's found in verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled, guys. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now in the Greek, these are present continuous imperatives, which means that the sentence would have gone a little bit like this. As you keep your belief in God, that's despite whatever circumstance you go through, you keep your belief in God, keep on believing in me also. That's actually something that all of us will have a time where we need to hold on to that truth when the storms of life hit, hit us and we feel like the captain has left the ship and the waves are hitting us and we're at the expense of the elements. We need to remember that we have a captain that never leaves the ship, that our God is always in control, that there's not a day that he takes a nap he is always in control. And the disciples knew that. But he said, as surely as you can put your trust in God in all circumstances, put the same level of trust in me. Now, once again, Jesus is claiming to be God outright once again here in the gospel of John. He did this all the time. And in the purpose statement of John's gospel, it was, John said, listen, these things I wrote to you. I wrote to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. And that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So Jesus makes this bold claim. As surely as you could put your belief and trust in God, put that same level of belief and trust in me. It's a cause for comfort, number one. But the second cause for comfort is that this is not 
goodbye. These guys, their hearts are breaking, but we've been with you, Jesus. We love you. While Jesus is about to give them a comfort that this ain't goodbye, he says this in verse two to three. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I do go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. So this is not goodbye. In fact, if they are mourning the lack of Jesus' presence, what is coming is even greater than what they're experiencing right now because he's promising them an eternity in the Father's house. That's a term for heaven, and it has a connotation of being like a family. There's many words used for heaven. This is one of them, the Father's house. And it's because in the ancient times, in those days, the, the, the dad would build a house, and all the children would get raised up in it. But then when the children get married, they build another apartment onto the same property. And then that family also lives with another room in the father's house. And then the next family grows up. They have kids. They get another piece built onto it. And so we have build on and build on and build on. And the father's house gets very large. If this was an episode of MTV Cribs, it would win. This is the crib right? Of all cribs. This is the father's house with many, many, many rooms. And the comfort is I'm going to not only prepare a place specifically for you, I'm going to come and bring you so that where I am, you can be also. In fact, um, let's talk a little bit about heaven. I understand it's not the point of the preach. The point of the preach is the way to heaven. But while we're here, just a quick, some quick thoughts on heaven. That heaven is a prepared place. We've just been reading that Jesus is speaking about. It's also a populated place because every tribe, nation, and tongue are there worshiping the Lamb 24-7. It's also a perpetual place because the light of that great city will never grow dim, that Jesus himself will be there as the light of the world beaming out from that new Jerusalem. It's also a perfect place in absolutely every respect. The perfection of God will not be hindered by anything. That it will be a place of perfect existence. There's gonna be no storms, no trials. It's gonna be a place of perfect peace. There's no disturbances allowed. There's gonna be a place of perfect joy where there's no tears, no fears. It's just ecstatic joy to the king where we can render perfect service. That means we can give out our lives for him fully unhindered, unabridged forevermore, that we can give him perfect praise, unabridged, just worshiping the lamb. Holy is he, telling him exactly how worthy he is, bowing down before the king of kings in a perfect way. That will be his perfect presence, unhindered, just full throttle, 100% Jesus, 0% evil. It will just be his full presence and we are gonna have a jaw. You can look up those verses. I put them there so you can go deeper. But in the context of this passage, it's the fact that Jesus' presence will be there that was a comfort. Because these guys were mourning already that Jesus, who they loved, would be lost to them. He says, don't mourn. We're going to be together. Heaven awaits you, my Father's house. This is a word of comfort. And yet, what actually was supposed to be comforting turned out actually to be quite confusing for the disciples. Which heads, gives us to heading number three, the clarity for the confused. They weren't the brightest, the disciples, as you will see. Jesus says to them, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come and bring you also. Verse four, and you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas said, 
Lord, we do not uh, know the way. Um, how can we know the way? So when Jesus said, you guys know the way, he was really overestimating their abilities. So Thomas says, excuse me, Lord, but just to clarify, where are you going again? And also, how do we get there? I'm just asking for a friend. It's just, I know James is not going to get it, so I'm just asking for him. And if they don't know this answer, let me tell you, they have not been listening because Jesus has been telling them this. Heading number one, confusion number one, what is the way, right? That's what Thomas is confused about. Now, Jesus repeated the phrase, the way, like 37 times. He said he's the way to God, the way to the Father, the way to heaven. He is the way. The central revelation that Jesus has been telling them is, boys, I'm the way. Just so that you do know, uh, the path, the road to the kingdom, to the Father, it's me. Okay, cool. He's been telling them that. And so that's the central idea. In fact, he's the door to the kingdom. He said that in one of his I am statements. In another statement in Matthew 7, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Just so that you know, this is a challenging verse. This is saying that hell is not a minority deal for the fringe. It's actually a majority deal that the people who find their way to eternal destruction are many, and the way to take that path is easy. But the way to heaven is hard, and the gate is narrow. And the reason why is there's only one gate, and it's Jesus. He says this in John 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. The reason you, you think about your family, you think about your friends, Jesus' statement is the vast majority of people will not be found in the Father's house because the only people found in the Father's house are the people that know the way. And by know the way, they mean that they know, adore, and love Jesus because Jesus is the gate. And those who are willing to accept in this life that there's only one way to be saved and it's through Jesus because he's the gate are going to be few. That's a challenging verse. But Jesus keeps telling people this. And so when Thomas asks, how can we know the way? It's in that context that Jesus said to him, bro, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then after that, he even goes even further to speak about this thing about the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. But even more than that, if you have known me, you will have known my Father also. Potato, potato, right? From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Why? Because they've seen Jesus. So Jesus isn't only the gate. He isn't only the way. He is the visual representation of the Father in heaven. So he says, lads, I don't want you to miss this, please. Are you writing this down? Have you got your papyrus out? Please, get your ink, your papyrus, right? From now on, you do know the Father and you have seen him. Why? Because if you've known me, you've known the Father. Capish, And all the disciples said, Capish. And now Philip, in not his brightest moment, straight after that speech, 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip. (laughs) And that's where we got our South African word from, Philip. It was there in John 14. Just so that you do know. There's biblical precedent for saying Philip. It was here. Jesus says, Philip. Philip. And this brings us to confusion too, which is show us the Father. So Jesus, he's patient. He's a loving guy. But even in this verse, I can see he's at the edge of impatience. He says in verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Jesus is like flippy. It's been a while. You've been here for three years now, my boy. Tomorrow, I'm actually dying. So if you don't get this now, there's no revision exam. I don't know what textbook you've been reading. So Jesus is like driving the nail down. Also, was he not listening, Philip? I don't know where his ears were. Verse 9, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how, Philip? Can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the walking representation of the Father. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Flippy, you're talking to the visual representative that perfectly represents the Father. Do you realize how controversial this statement is that Jesus is making? Imagine a Hebrew being told, I'm the representative of the Father. Everything that he believes, I believe. Everything that he does, I do. Whatever he feels, I feel. I am just in the Father. And it was on account of statements like these that they actually wanted to kill Jesus. It says that later in, in John, the religious group, the Pharisees, hearing a statement like this, it says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we gonna do? If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe him. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Because the Pharisees, Oaks were clicking unfollow, unsubscribe from their group. Because Jesus was way more popular. So they're like, we can't have this. Everyone's going to believe this guy next thing you know. We best kill him. And how were they going to kill him? Well, based on the fact that what he claims is blasphemy, that he says he's God which by the way, he does claim. So that was the ammunition, which leads us to the controversial claim. Because what Jesus says is so controversial in verse six that it should polarize us to either do what the Pharisees did, which is to kill him, or we have to crown him as the king. But what we can't do is take some middle ground gray area. So this is the controversial claim. Jesus said, Thomas, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father without me saying so. 
He says, I'm the only way to God. I'm the truth about God. I am the life of God. I am God in all of his fullness. Thomas Kempis says, without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's no living. Without Jesus, you get nothing. With Jesus, you get everything. He is the embodiment of the invisible God, made physical, in flesh. We could touch him. We could hug him. They could murder him. He is the Father represented. This is super controversial. So let's go through it. Number one, he is the truth. He says, I am the truth. In fact, when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate, he could have said his reason for coming to earth was one of a number of things. But this is what he says. Jesus answered, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. For what? To witness to the truth. Truth is a big deal for Jesus. Yet we live in a society that disregards truth. That we must not speak the truth in case somebody gets offended. That truth must take a back seat so that feelings can be elevated. But what we don't understand is if we neglect to speak the truth we actually are neglecting Jesus Christ himself because he says, I am the truth. So being ashamed to speak the truth is the same thing as being ashamed of Jesus himself. And what are the consequences of such an attitude where we don't want to offend anybody and we, don't want any, we want to be ashamed? This is what it says in Luke 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be ashamed. That at the end of our life of actually shying away, preserving offense, not wanting to step on any toes, being ashamed of what we believe in, at the end of the day, God will come before the Son of Man and he will also be ashamed of us. It's such a challenging verse. In fact, one of those metal bands that screams that I was talking about, they said, you tell me not to speak, but you don't understand. He's ashamed of me when I'm ashamed of him. What good is the next level if we gain the world, but then we lose our soul? This is what's at stake in this society that we find ourselves in. God wants to know if you'll be willing to stand for the truth, because standing for the truth is standing for Jesus, because he says, I am the truth. Which means we can't water down Jesus. We can't censor him. We can't put fluff and Pocahontas Patrick Lambie Jesus back on there. His words are his words. Let the chips fall where they may. If you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you, so be bold. Stand up like a lion and declare the truth unashamed because he's the truth and the truth will set you free. So if we are more concerned with preserving offense than seeing people set free, <laughs> how, how selfish are we? And I've been there. I would rather preserve someone's feelings then actually tell them the truth, which could set them free. Jesus is encouraging us today. He is the truth. The truth sets us free. That's who he is. Secondly, he also says, I am the life. Simon preached so well on this last week. You should go listen to it. This isn't talking about just breathing and existing. This is about having the kind of purpose that Jesus brings, having our life drip connected to him in such a way that our life is pumped full of passion and purpose and quality and richness and abundance because we connected to the source of all abundance and richness, the one who made life, the rivers of life, the rivers of water, the bread of life, the one who sustains. Because we connected to him, we have richness in our life. Not only are we breathing, but we're alive. I remember a time when 
I was alive. I was breathing, but I was definitely not living. I remember a time when I was a dead man walking. I was the angry atheist philosopher dude there at the colony arms, raging against religious people, drinking 10 flipping black label courts before 10 o'clock at night just raging at people, super angry, and I thought that my life counted for something, but I was a dead man. I had no life in me. Ever since that day, and God reached out for me whilst I was still in a stupor, and whilst I was in that darkness, Jesus reached out to me through metal bands and the Bible and people, and he dragged me out of the darkness into his marvelous light, and ever since that day, I've been pumped full of passion for Jesus from that day until today, to the extent that I just want to pick up a Bible and tell people every everywhere that Jesus is alive. There's life in his name. Submit to him. He's the king. There's life in his name because Jesus says, I am the life. Jesus also says, I'm the way. That means faith in Jesus alone will save you. I know that's not popular today. I know people think that's narrow-minded. We believe people of all religions validly come to heaven. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church uh, made a paper and passed it called Wider Mercy, which says people of all religions get saved. They didn't find that in the Bible, I can tell you. And also universalism that believes all people go to heaven. Another thing you won't find in the Bible. What people are doing is they are taking just parts of the Bible that, that suit them and leaving the rest that's unpopular and challenging them. But Christianity is not a spiritual build your own burger. This is not a order a pizza Bible and then put your own toppings on. This is accept the Bible and all that it says or disregard it and all that it says, but don't be so patronizing to think you can copy paste the God out of your imagination. That God's not alive or breathing and definitely won't save you. It's just a reflection of your imagination. Could just as well be Pinocchio that you're worshiping. This God is real and alive and what he says isn't always popular. Our society believes there's many ways to heaven. Everyone ends up there, but Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. Those who find it are few, because very few are going to say, I submit to one God, he's Jesus, he's the gate, he's the narrow way, he's the one way to God. There's salvation in no other name but his. And there is salvation in no other name, but the fact that there is a salvation is kind of mind-blowing. How is it that we are unrighteous, we are unholy, and the holy God and his righteousness who has to destroy all that is unholy, how is there a way that we can be in relationship with him? How is there a way that we can be to the Father? The fact that there's not many ways to heaven is not surprising, but the fact that there is a way to be reconciled is very surprising. And it's only made possible because of what we celebrated last weekend, that Jesus had his flesh ripped apart, that he was subjected to the worst scorn, that he had the full wrath of every human being that ever lived and ever existed poured out on him, and that God treated Jesus as if he lived my life. So that in exchange in my faith for Jesus, Jesus then turns around and treats me as if I had Jesus' full record. That he became sin who knew no sin so that I can become the righteousness of God. The fact that there's a way to salvation was through the blood and the sacrifice and the death of Jesus. How can there be any other way? If there was a cosmic debt to pay, then someone cosmic had to pay the price. And that was God himself. He paid the cosmic debt. The fact that there's a way 
for us to be in heaven is crazy. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace that the king of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame? That's what we sung earlier, that God himself suffered. No single world religion will ever claim that God suffered because it's blasphemous. And who invents a story where God is weak, where God dies, right? That's really bad propaganda. If you're going to invent a religion, that's not going to be number one on the ideas pitch because everything else is a man-made religion. But this is the most crazy thing. This is an announcement, the good news of Jesus. And it's not a religion. It's something, it's a truth claim and it's an announcement of good news that God himself stepped down from glory, wore my sin, my shame, was nailed to the cross. And because he was nailed to the cross, I can be made right with God. And that is crazy. That is mad. That is awesome. That is the gracious God that we serve. And there is no other way. Of course, there's no other way. But when we look at how exclusive this is, that there's only one way to salvation, yes, it's exclusive, but it's also beautiful. It's the most beautiful, gracious, loving, glorious thing that was ever said, that God himself would bleed for people who don't deserve it, like me. And not only is it beautiful, but it's also the most inclusive, exclusive truth statement in the world. Every truth statement is exclusive. Even to say all things are relative. If that statement's not relative, then it's still a truth claim and it's still exclusive. Okay, enough philosophy. It's the most inclusive truth claim because if you believe good people from all religions go to heaven, there's no hope for people like me that are bad. There's only one religion that ever claims, I came to save the bad people the lost. And so if you consider yourself to be not a perfect person, which I would hazard a guess that you're not, then there's only one hope. He's a living hope, Jesus Christ. Because there's no other religion out there that ever claims to come and save the wretched but Jesus. And I thank God for that because he saved me. I was lost, but I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Not because of anything I did, but because of everything that he did. So I thought I knew Jesus, but man, I was totes off. The disciples thought they knew Jesus, but they were totes off. I would hate for any of us sitting here, even if we've been in church life for many years, to be surrounded by the teachings of Jesus, but actually miss him and who he is. And as they were missing him, he made a controversial statement because he wanted to polarize them, to say, decide who I am. Either crown me as the king or kill me. In Revelation 3, Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is wanting to polarize us today. He's wanting to polarize us and it demands a response. So will you guys stand with me today? Just stick with me here. When Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, he demanded that people make up their mind who he is. Either kill him as a blasphemer or crown him as the king. But one thing Jesus does not want to be acceptable is some middle ground 
that Jesus is some kind of mechanism with which we make our life feel a bit better, some kind of therapeutic blanket we put on, or some kind of moral teacher that we sometimes learn from, or some kind of guy that vaguely showed the way and said some cool stuff like I thought. Jesus wants to polarize you and me today the same way that he polarized everyone there to say, either kill me or crown me. But the middle ground's not valid. And so today I wonder where we are at. Because if we're going to crown him, then it means that we submit our life before him. That means that we don't just accept that he forgave us and died for us and rose from the dead, but that we actually crown him in our lives, that we say, you're king over all of me. You're king over my future, king over my decisions, king over my career, and that my life will be lived out to serve you all of my days. There might be people here today that though you have heard of Jesus dying on the cross, forgiving and all that stuff, that you've never made the decision to crown him as the king over your life. Now, I want to give you a chance to respond to that because this series I am is all about this, that Jesus says he's God and that we have to decide if we agree. And if we agree, we must crown him. So if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes and bowing your heads just to give the person next to you some privacy. If there's anyone here who wants to make the decision that just based on today's sermon, you say, I wanna submit my life before the king. I wanna give all of myself to Jesus fully and unconditionally with absolutely no reservations that he's the king over my life. If that's you today and you've never made such a choice, would you put your hand up really high so I can see it's not about me. I see that hand. On this side, I see that hand at the back. I see that hand by the sound desk over here as well. It's not for me. You're putting a stake in the ground. You're saying, Jesus, I want to crown you as king. That's it. I see that hand as well. We thank you for the hands that are raised and the hands that I didn't see that are raised and for the hearts that are also raised. And I'm going to pray with you guys with your hands raised. I'm going to pray a prayer for us to submit before God as King today. Father, I just, I come before you with these brothers and sisters and we just wanna say that we believe in you, that we believe you are who you said you are, that you're the great I am, that you're the way, the truth and the life, that you're the way to the Father that there's no other, that you paid the price on the cross, that you rose to defeat sin and that you're the king of kings. And since you're the king of kings, we wanna choose today to bow before you. We wanna bow before you on our knees. We wanna say that you're the king, that you have control over our life, our decisions, our career, our faculties, and all of who we are. We wanna say we give ourselves to you without condition or reservation, that you be the king, that we decide today to crown you as the king over our life because you are the king and because you're worthy. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We submit ourselves before you today. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I feel like when we look at this text and we look at how Jesus says, crown me, there's an opportunity for all of us to respond. Not just those brothers and sisters that put up their hand for the first time, all of us, we need to recognize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if there is no other way, then there's no other name that's worthy. 
If there's no other way to God, there's no other name which should have our praise on our lips. There's no other name for which we should raise our hands. And so we're going to sing that one name holds weight above them all. That his fame outlasts the earth he formed. That his praise resounds beyond the stars and echoes in our hearts. The greatest one of all. The name that is above all names. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the one with the sword that comes out of his mouth, but yet he would die as if a common criminal. What kind of a God is that? There's no one like him. There's no other way. There's no other name that's worthy. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And to him, we lift up our praise. We lift up our hands. There's no other name that is worthy. And so let's worship him in this place right now.